Hi everyone, uh, this is Victor Mercado, a principal at Illum Advising, and on today's episode of Current, I'll be filling in for Ann Doherty. Uh, and today I'm delighted to talk with a colleague and a good friend, uh, Catherine Kent, who is the owner and president of the Solar Store. Hi Catherine, how are you? Hi, hi. Thanks for being here. Uh, the Solar Store is an Arizona uh, solar installation company that provides residential and commercial services. So from solar panel installations to EV chargers, to battery generators, to batteries and to generators and, and so much more. And, and we've been wanting to reach out uh, to you for a while now. Uh, first of all, you know we know just how hard the clean energy um, industry was hit as a result of, as a result of COVID-19. And secondly, our, our team has actually been um, providing a lot of commentary on US presidential candidate Joe Biden's climate plan. Uh, much of what has to do with the role of clean energy in securing a path to the country's economic recovery. So that's been very relevant. And so we felt it was important to check in with folks like yourself. Uh, a few weeks ago, we connected with Yasmin Ansari, who's a candidate for Phoenix City Council. And so she offered her take on clean energy from the lens of politics. And so today we wanted to connect with someone who is in the business of also enabling clean energy. Um, but before we get started, really quickly introduce uh, today's guest to our, to our listeners. Uh, Catherine Kent has more than 30 years of professional experience providing engineering design, construction, and operations support and management for projects involving environmental remediation, sustainable building design and construction. She holds a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Houston, her master's degree in nuclear and energy engineering from the University of Arizona, and her MBA also from the University of Arizona. Um, Catherine evaluates residential and commercial construction for energy efficiency during the design and construction phases, as well as providing post-construction retrofit recommendations. And finally, as the president of the solar store, uh, Ms. Kent has designed and supervised the installations of literally thousands of residential and commercial solar installations within the last 14 years. So Catherine, we're, we're so uh, glad you could be here today. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having, having me, inviting me over here. Um, I want to also add that I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm actually the electrical contractor and a, and a plumbing contractor. So we install solar thermal as well as solar electric and the solar store has now been in business for um, 22 years. So um, Catherine, for, for, I'm going to start with a very broad question. For our listeners who are not familiar with your work, um, tell us more about um, how you got into the industry. And so you know, you've been here for 20 years and, and how the solar store supports its customers as they make the transition into clean energy. Uh, I was fortunate to work for the Environmental Research Lab at the University of Arizona in the mid-80s and had the opportunity to install my first grid-connected solar system in 1986, and that was up in Phoenix. Um, we, uh, the Environmental uh, Research Laboratory did a lot to work on how to evaluate and live in the desert environment, and so of course that's going to include solar. Um, I I then sort of split off and went to a couple different directions, but I did do a lot of solar consulting and helping, um, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the United Arab Emirates. I helped design a couple solar projects over there. <clears throat> and then um, in the, the late 90s, my father, John Wesley Miller, came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in starting a solar business in Tucson. And he brought a bunch of solar people together. And quite honestly, at the time, I was doing uh, engineering consulting and I was quite happy working by myself. But we all got together and before you know it, um, we started up the solar store with my dad and uh, another uh, a local installer, Jerry Samaniego. Um, and that was in 1998. <clears throat> Little did we realize um, that this Y2K thing was going to really take off. And I know that's like, a, you know, a blast from the past, but um, Y2K, you know, and all the people's concerns about the utilities, you know, not being able to provide power uh, allowed us to go from um, zero to, you know, we were over 1.2 million in our second year as people were preparing for this ultimate disaster that never happened. Um, my uh, Jerry Samaniego left in 2001. I bought out my father in 2005. And since then, the solar store has been continuing to grow and installing uh, a variety of solar types of projects in Southern Arizona. 
I, I find it so interesting, this, this kind of thread about, you know, preparing for disaster. Uh, I do remember Y2K. And uh, also, I think what's, what's interesting that speaks a lot about, I really appreciate, you know, your experience in, in through the Environmental Research Lab, because I think it gave you, I'm, a, I'm guessing that it gave you kind of a, a great introduction into resilience, right? Just in terms of like, how do we build in the desert? What, what kind of conditions? And I can imagine that a lot of those lessons are, 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 are coming are coming back around. It, it, it is amazing how when you stick around long enough that you keep getting, you get an opportunity to learn the same lessons over and over again. So <clears throat> energy efficiency was really important back in the 70s and then it came back around again in the 90s and then here we are again in a new evolution with much better technologies available to us now. So I, you know, it used to be you had to be kind of a quirky, nerdy, you know, tech, techie kind of person to really bring your house to net zero. But nowadays, um, you know, most of the stuff you, you can pick up at your local um, big box, you know, hardware store. And so you can, you know, homeowners can do it themselves and really significantly reduce their energy use. Catherine, so uh, Illuma has been keeping a close eye on the on clean energy jobs, you know, post COVID-19. We spoke about this prior to hopping on the call here. Um, you know, at one point, when we look back, the industry lost literally close to 600,000 jobs. Uh, there were stories in, in the LA Times and other pieces on, on, on some of those job losses. What, what impacts have you witnessed from your vantage point at, at the solar store? Well, I say at the solar store, we're really fortunate. We're actually up about 25% from last year. Um, and that was because, at least in Arizona, we were considered an essential business and we never really shut down. Um, we did have to pivot our sales approach uh, to recognize um, the consumer's concerns about uh, the COVID and transmission. But, um, you know, uh, that has actually been really relatively easy for us because we have such a direct and a personal approach into in our sales model that you know when we when we make the appointment we ask the customer their level of concern and what they would feel comfortable with and we tell them what we feel comfortable with and so even before the appointment set um, we know the basis of the the um, protection and the PPE that's going to be required to make everyone comfortable. Um, we did set up Zoom meetings and, and that availability, but most of the time our customers were just as happy to sit with us outside in their patios or whatever so that we could, um, you know, be able to talk one-on-one -on -one and, and still be able to um, convey the information that's necessary for them to make their decisions. Um, we're probably up like four or five FTEs. So, but I know that that is, that is more an, an exception than the rule. You know, in the, in the East Coast and the West Coast where the shutdowns were much more complete, uh, some of my um, uh, cohorts have had, you know, are, are struggling. And we're actually expecting from what I heard from a couple of my distributors that we may lose some solar installers as a result. Some of the larger national organizations have actually mm -hmm. moved their sales processes out of the east where there's been a huge growth in solar and then moving them further towards the Sunbelt states, which did not have as much requirements, not only on the, the, the um, constriction or the restriction from, this, from the sales process or the contact process, but as well as not having as many regulations. I mean, you know, Texas doesn't even have any sort of national or statewide net metering program at all. So, mm -hmm. um, and so we are, we are seeing in Arizona, a lot of some of the big, big names and the national uh, marketing groups coming in, doing a lot of um, phone calls to uh, consumers and with some impressive scare tactics and some nice little baits, you know, saying right now we're the only ones that offer this rebate, you know, that's uh, been administered by the state of Arizona. And in fact, there is no rebates in the state of Arizona. So with the consumer not knowing fully what's going on, we're hearing a lot of people that are signing contracts and then waking up the next day going, wow, I, I'm not really sure what I've done and I need to go get a second opinion. So. And, and that's really driven um, a lot of our new sales 
And I have to say on the, um, you know, the website and all of our other marketing is, we are up even, we're probably up about 45% over last year numbers. So I always like to say when the economy is doing well, people look for solar as a way to invest. And when things are kind of scary, people go to solar as a way to protect themselves against the unknown. Yeah, yeah, to reduce their energy burden as well. That makes sense. Um, and it's interesting how, you know, the, the number, I see a lot of those ads too in my terms. You know, go to solar now, I get a ton of spam and emails. So, and it's interesting how inadvertently that is good for you, right? Driving, driving business, because I, I can imagine customers are thinking, you know, this sounds like a great deal, but I, I, I need more before, before I commit to that. And we'll talk about that later on. Um, and the podcast, I'm, I'm uh, excited they actually brought that up. That's a, it's a great, great conversation. I'm curious, what type of federal and state initiatives would you like to see to support the clean energy industry? So, you know, uh, you know, we see on, on Biden's uh, climate plan, there's a lot of emphasis on this, but just in general, when you think about um, the, the support from, you know, federal government, state government, what, what would you like to see to to help your to help your work uh, and to support our industry and, and and why would you like to see some of those changes or maybe for some things to remain the same? Right, I think that you know sort of from the thirty thousand foot level, I would like to see um, individuals, um, the distributed generation as well as the large commercial developers of solar, to have somehow be in an even playing field with the utilities. Um, and, and right now, the at least in the state of Arizona, that that it's been tilted, you know, a li- more towards the utilities. And, and I and I look at this from the the you know, um, utilities are guaranteed a return on investment, um, but a homeowner is not. And um, the decisions that are made by the corporation commissions and the public utility commissions um, really should consider this as an investment towards our entire utility infrastructure. So the first thing that really needs to be done right off the bat is that we need to be able to be assured that there's going to be net metering nationwide. Now, interestingly, once again, from the Arizona perspective, they had gone through the value of solar operation. Um, I I feel that that analysis was, was completely flawed in the way that the boundary conditions were established. So they put a boundary around a homeowner and they put a boundary around the utility plant and they thought, what is the cost of this solar towards the utility and what benefit is the homeowner getting? In fact, the boundary needs to be around the whole complete system, all of the grid, all of the utility companies and the homeowners. And I think that you know this analysis, when done looking at the entire uh, organization of the utility company has consistently come up with the same result that distributed generation is a benefit for the entire grid. It is a benefit for the solar customers and the non-solar customers in providing a more consistent um, uh, utilities, um, you know, the higher um, utilization of the power plant. And so we need to get net metering back. I started on my thought was that in, in Tucson and in Arizona in general, you know, the utilities with their value of solar decided that, you know, the, um, the amount that the utilities are going to pay for everything that you sell back is um, set at a value. And for Tucson Electric Power, it started out about 9.6 cents versus their 10 and a half cents of what you pay them. And then they only have to pay you 9.6. Now, interestingly enough, they set it up so that every year that value of solar is decreasing without the, uh, you know, and the analysis of, is it really decreasing? So the utilities automatically can continuously reduce how much they're going to be paying the new installations without actually having to go through further evaluation about, is it really what that value is? Because the utility is turning around and selling that power that I'm selling back to my neighbor at that 10.5 cents, which is going to be going up soon for Tucson Electric Power, and so they're making money on that. And so somehow I think the net metering perspective needs to be renewed and that needs to be set. Now I, I know there was a lot of pushback when it was decided that maybe we should have a national net metering rule because once you get something that's on a national rule then it's easy to change to being not net metering. So 
but somehow we need to get back to net metering as number one. The second part is as we sort of drop down, um, we need to, um, you know, right now from, uh, uh, from SIA, which is the Solar Energies Industry Association, about a dollar per watt is involved in getting the utility approvals, the permits, um, having to have to go out and get inspections, preparing, preparing permits, paying for permits. And so um, that's a significant burden when the, you know, when I started in the industry, solar panels were about $25 a watt, and now you can get them for 50 cents. So now the, there's a disproportionate burden on getting the uh, systems approved and applied for. So um, right, yeah. has started a program called Solar App, Solar APP, which is looking at trying to find a national standard for the um, uh, what's required for permits, for the permit costs. And I say we're very fortunate in Arizona is that we went through this process. And so I know with all the uh, jurisdictions that I work with, that they're all going to require the same information. So as a designer, um, I know that when I do my permit package, this is what I have to do, and there's not going to be a lot of changes to that. But I know, um, unfortunately, what's happened and evolved is that the utilities all now require different things. And so um, that process needs to be expanded, not only the AHJs, but over through all of the utilities. And we are seeing some consolidation on the utilities now are using what's called PowerClerk, which is a national software program so that we can actually drop off our, you know, we can um, apply for the utility process online. But for right. example, Tucson Electric Power requires that all of the um, documents, even though we scan them to TEP, they all have to be wet signed by the customer. But why? You know, why not follow the process that um, Trico has where they actually, when we send in an application, an email is sent to the customer and the customer actually signs it right on the, um, the PowerKirk application. So finding some way to consolidate that approval process is, was, is significant. And, um, and then I think that there are some other things that really need to be looked at. Um, the, there is no incentives for installers to um, guarantee that they're, what they say the system's going to do, it's really going to do. And um, there is no incentives for the installer to actually monitor and to make sure that the uh, customer's system is, um, is actually working and doing what it should. So somehow, providing some sort of incentive for installers to monitor the systems and then have the, you know, the, the carrot and the, and the stick being requiring that the installers provide some sort of performance um, validation. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to drill in a little bit on this because having been in the industry as long as I have, mm -hmm. I've seen hundreds of installers go away. And there are tens of thousands of installations out there that we refer to now as orphans. Most solar contractors will not touch a system that was installed by someone else. They don't want to assume that liability. So that leaves the poor consumer standing there going, well, now what am I supposed to do? What do I, what do, I do? I feel like it's the, the equivalent of stranded assets, right, in our industry. Exactly. And so, um, you know, at the solar store, we've, we've not taken that approach and we have taken on all the orphans we can find. Um, we do have some caveats to make sure that we can be, um, you know, we can be able to maintain that system. But we see in the sales process, everybody is always talking about how their systems are monitored and how that, you know, we're gonna be able to tell you whether your system's working or not. But what we find in practice is that most installers do not actually actively monitor their systems. And so they don't keep an eye on what's going on with their stock. And so that leaves the consumer, because quite honestly, 
they tend to, to keep an eye on the monitoring for a month or two, and then they get something else gets in their life. Oh, I don't know, their life or some COVID thing or whatever. And so they lose track. And then all of a sudden, one month, they get a, you know, a $150 electric bill to find out that their inverter has not been working for, you know, 30 days. Who knows what, right. And that's, it's, that's not fair to the consumer. And it doesn't provide the stability to the grid that we keep talking about when we talk about our value to the grid and to the utilities. So um, we, and then I think when a, when a company goes out of business, they need to find a way to pass on that um, their, their stockpile of systems to someone that can effectively um, continue to manage them. And we have had several um, installers that have gone out of business and have reached out to us and I want to commend them for doing that. But most of those actually, they picked up solar as a secondary business and then decided not to be in solar. So they had a vested interest in trying to maintain their name in, in the industry, their name and their reputation. So they were able to say, we don't want all these people to say, hey, we just put in a system and then we abandoned them. So let's find someone else to take, take over for them. So somehow, our, and that's where I'm, you know, I'm talking about and I'm pointing right at myself, our industry has to find a way to police ourselves. I have to tell you, when I see these people coming down from, you know, these national companies, I know for a fact, I mean, even, and I'm not to be disparaging all companies in, in Phoenix, but a lot of the companies that will even come down from Phoenix to Tucson, you will never see them again. And, um, and so that's not fair to the consumer. And so they went out with, you know, good faith and got all, you know, competitive bids. But when somebody bids you a project that they're only going to come and install it, and that's the money that they've put into it versus somebody that's looking at trying to bid for a long-term relationship, that is inevitably going to be more expensive. But it sounds like it's a different incentive structure, right? Yeah, but that's what we're going to need to do. And whether that's managed through the utilities, and I don't know whether that's the rest way, or there's some tax credits that, you know, we can do. And then, you know, once again, just like the utilities have to show that they've, that they're, they're, they've got so much um, renewable energy, you know, maybe I need to say that I've, I, that my, my, uh, installations are doing 95% of what I had guaranteed they're going to do. Yeah, I, I love the way that you frame that, Catherine. And I think somewhere the lines, you really were able to tie it back. And it seems that what, what you're really saying is that there has to be a balance between, you know, what is fair for the consumer and, and grid stability and being able to, to, to balance that, right? So we started, you know, from talking about from from net metering to, you know, something that could be as simple as implementing a type of a DocuSign system for these types of, of applications and approvals that can be, that can expedite the work that you do. Um, and I think what, what really stood out for me is this idea of, of that, you know, there are some, some businesses like, like yours who do operate in, in good faith and, and then what happens for those that don't, um, you know, is there, does there has to be, is it a regulatory process that has to be the, the intervener for that? Or is there have to be more of a, of, of a tax credit type of incentive, right? That we talking back to the original question, right? You know, what are, what is the, what do we need to see from the federal government, from the state government? And, uh, also realizing that if we do what's good for the goose kind of logic might, might kind of backfire. Um, and then finally, this idea that, you know, perhaps maybe, maybe the, the path forward is, is measuring impacts, right? So, you know, businesses like yours that are able to pick up some of these, you know, orphans, like you call them or stranded assets, you know, maybe there's a way that, that you can say, look, we were able to, to pick up the slack and either, you know, uh, rehab or refurbish the systems and to make sure that they're working properly. Um, I, I love the way that you were able to, um, to tie that back together, which I think really kind of dovetails into our next question. You know, as we talk about, you know, we know that Tucson Electric Power announced it will increase renewable generation to more than 70% by 2035. They're not alone. We're seeing, you know, this across the board from different companies, you know, uh, Excel Energy struck first. And then from then on, everybody else has been uh, on, a, on a mission to do that. APS uh, certainly also wants to go 100% renewable. Actually, they want to go 100% renewable by, I want to say 2030 um, is the, you know, the, the message that, that came down. 
uh, from uh, from their CEO and their board. And, and um, uh, so, so as we look at TP and, and you know this announcement, how did how did you greet the news from your vantage point, and, and what does that mean uh, for companies uh, like the Solar Store? I think it's great, and I think it does go a long way to say that solar has finally reached you know cost parity. And in fact, it's, it, is, it has fallen much below traditional electric sources if you're looking at coal or natural gas. Um, and then um, without even having to look at, because the utilities certainly don't seem to be as interested in looking at the environmental impacts and, and, and rolling that into their costs. So solar is here. Solar can do the job. The problem that I see, and this I have to just, I'll say right off the bat, does directly you know, implicate the solar store and affect us, is that these utilities don't seem to be as interested in distributive generation. They want to get that 70% portfolio from their own stock. So they're still in control of the utility and they do not allow for um, an individual to do what they can, you know, invest their own money and be able to, you know, to be able to become, you know, potentially grid agnostic, you know, to be able to, you know, switch out to another utility if they want, because TEP is using um, the, the current program as well as all the other utilities within the state to keep you tied to their grid, and because they you are required to get their approval. So um, I think. You know, once again, at, at, at the highest level, I think this is all good, but I, I really would like to see the utilities be willing to embrace that that 70% or more should be able to come from all sources. If as a consumer, I'm willing to invest my own hard-earned money to put a system on my rooftop, I should be allowed to have that system being viewed and its value being um, uh calculated based on the same numbers that they're using. So, um, you know, that's where I come back to the net metering things again and, and, and just keep driving that home. I, I should not be, as a consumer, helping to finance the utilities movement to solar at the cost of my ability to do the same. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I love what you said that in terms of, of um, I think you mentioned, you know, utilities doing a better job at being grid agnostic and also, you know, to look at really how how much freedom I think what I'm hearing uh, customers have to to embrace how that 70% mix is, you know, how that actually happens. I know that there's other assets. Um, I know APS is looking. I think uh, you know, Palabarde generating is a huge, you know, huge part of that mix. So I think. Um, in, in its merits, what I'm hearing, it's, it's great, but I think, you know, the devil is in the details, like they say, and, and I think this is one of those opportunities <laughs> of where where we um, maybe, again, to return to, uh, uh, seems like there's a, uh, I'm hearing a need for a return to the conversation around net metering, and what does that look like now versus maybe, you know, what's happened in the last, you know, 10 years. Well, um, we're going to be looking at a, a lot of, you know, TEP and all the utilities originally established, and it was approved by the Corporation Commission, a 20-year window on your agreement. Well, we're quickly approaching where the, the you know, our, you know, the, um, the, uh, the, the brave few first started going out and putting in systems. And then we're going to have a big bubble that we got in the, the 2004, 5, and 6 you know, we're not too far away. And all of a sudden, those folks which have been on net metering, and if we look at the way the utilities are degrading their um, amount that they're paying back, they're going to wake up one day and get an agreement from TEP that says, we're only going to pay you half of what you're getting, you know, you're getting, or you were getting. And then with the net metering, you know, you're allowed to accrue extra credits in the spring and be able to apply them to your energy use during the summertime. And all of a sudden, people like that may get zero bills in, you know, March and April, but they're going to start seeing $100 and $200 electric bills in the summertime. And so I think the shock is going to be significant. I think there's going to be a huge public outcry when that happens. But right now, I think people are kind of just... A lot of the consumers that I've talked to, they're just all happy. They go, well, I'm on net metering. I don't have to worry about that. Well, that time period that you don't have to worry about is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm. So it's going, to, it's going to be significant. And then all of a sudden, I think we're going to have a lot of people that are going to be screaming. 
yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that framing in terms of, you know, the, the, what I'm hearing is this, this potential, um, you know, potential future sticker shock, right, or, or, or bill shock uh, for folks who, it's almost like bill creep, right, or uh, I don't know. How and, to, and many of them actually, I mean, paid huge amounts of money, you know, to get their system if they were that, or, you know, early adopters like that. Now they did have the benefit of some rebates, but still, I mean, we, you know, when we started, it was between seven and eight dollars a watt for an installation. And of course, the utility at the very beginning was was putting in four dollars a watt, and then they dropped to two, and then it eventually got down to ten cents. But um, you know, there was, you know, they there was some significant financial contributions. And granted, they've probably gotten their money back. They should have in twenty years. But what's happening to the group that are signing now is they only have a ten-year agreement. So with the ten-year agreement, you may not even have a chance to recoup your money before the amount that you get, you know, your agreement with the utility significantly cuts the amount that you're getting paid. And I think the utilities in this case may be, and, and not to say that they haven't been in the past, but they're very short-sighted because with the storage technology advancing as it is right now, what I expect to see is that um, even though we don't have the rate differential enough to justify putting in batteries at that point, especially when the net metering people start getting off net metering, we're going to see a lot of people just going to self-consumption. And then it's not too far before we've got a whole new cut the cord group who actually can find a way to cut the cord with their utility. Uh, I, I love that, uh, that analogy. Obviously, I don't think that the, the utilities do, right? But I think that that's a very, that's a nice way of framing what could, what, you know, what the, the industry could look like, you know, down the line uh, as, as we integrate more, uh, as we integrate both solar, uh, both solar and, and, and storage. I, I love the way you frame that. And I think the other, the other piece that's, that's in the context there, Catherine, and we're going to talk a little bit about, we're going to talk more about this later, is just, I think, the ease by which some of these, you know, solar, um, you know, solar producers are moving towards direct-to-consumer might be making it, they're enabling, certainly, they're making it easier for homeowners like, you know, you and I to be able to, to, to enter solar and to participate, uh, and if, if the, you know, the, the incentives are not there, you know, in terms of, of as you look at, you know, um, net metering and, and, and whether or not people will recover their costs, you know, they might get stuck with, with never, you know, that's probably extreme, right? That never being able to pay for their system, or it just might take them more or it will take them longer um, to, to, to pay for those, uh, to pay for those systems. And I think that, you know, that's a, definitely a conversation that, that should be had um, before we jump in there, I, I, we have a few questions here. But in our in one of our, in one of our in our previous podcasts to this one, Catherine, we spoke to a couple of the, of our members of our team, and we talked about the intersection of HVAC systems, air quality, um, you know, as a as the context of COVID nineteen, you know, as residential and commercial customers have become very preoccupied or somewhat more preoccupied with indoor air quality. What type of reaction have you seen to products like radiant floor heating, which is one of the products that you all carry, which you know essentially bypasses and and reduces the circulation of dust, germs, and other particulate matter? I know that you know some vendors and companies are bringing in UV filters and other technologies. In this case, this this technology just bypasses it altogether. Um, what what are you seeing, and and uh, what's your reaction as people are having more conversations around air quality and environmental health? You know, we haven't heard much directly, um, and the radiant floor heating, which is, I mean, it. people sometimes say it's not an energy efficiency strategy. In fact, in some cases, it actually can cost more BTUs to do that kind of heating, but um, it does, does eliminate the whole requirement for airflow. And, um, you know, once again, in southern Arizona, there's not a huge demand for radiant floor heating. We, we are seeing increased interest in um, the higher elevations. So if we're looking at Santa Cruz County or Cochise County. Coconino County. Right? Yeah. And we're seeing those areas. Um, I have to say, it is a remarkably comfortable heating. 
because you your your temperatures are, are really consistent. So, um, but you know, the motivation doesn't seem to be as much a concern about indoor air quality is it as it is more of an issue with comfort. And so, um, um, you know, we've got a, a fairly large system that we're working on, which is down in uh, Santa Cruz County that, um, but once again, was, you know, a, a homeowner that had had it when they lived in Northern California and just really insisted they didn't care what the cost was. They just wanted to have that comfort. Oh, and it gets cold down there. I'm from Nogales. So I know that, that those shifts in temperature are, are, are definitely extreme. Yep. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, and Nogales is about one mile high, isn't it? Something about that. So 4,000 feet or 4,500. So it can get much cooler up there. So, and of course, you know, if we saw, you know, we did see after the fire up in Mount Lemmon, we did see um, a lot of people that wanted to get ready for heating up there. Mm -hmm. so, but not a lot of other interest in, or concerns about air quality from, from the customers that we're dealing with. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'd also love to get your take on this. So, you know, recently, Illum has taken the lead on sharing conversations on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, you know, one important aspect is really diversifying our workforce. Um, from from your vantage point, is there uh, a role for contractors or what is the role for contractors in increasing access to green jobs? And if so, uh, what is that role? And if not, whose role is it? Well, I think that um, the contractors, when they do take the lead on the training, it's been proven to be very successful. I'm a part of the Independent Electrical Contractors Association, and we have a, um, an apprenticeship program. <clears throat> and so it's a traditional four-year apprenticeship program, but it also requires that they get 8,000 hours of on-the-job training. So um, the apprentices will go to class in the evening and then they're working for the member contractors during the day. PHCC has a similar program and of course the unions all do too. And so um, I, I think it's really important on the, con the contractors end to be involved. And so, um, you know, for my employees, I work really hard at trying to, uh, if they show an interest, to push them to these types of programs. I mean, some people will say, well, why are you doing that? Because effectively then once they get their journeyman, they can go and open their own company. Well, hallelujah, if that's what they want to do. Um, you know, I've got the gray hair. I don't intend to be working for the rest of, you know, my life. I'm hoping to have a little bit of time in retirement. And, and so people need to learn the trades and be able to get that formal training, but also have on the job. Because the other side of it that we're seeing is that many people may, you know, a lot of the apprentices that will come, they'll work for us for, a, you know, a couple of months and go, wait a minute, this is not anything that I thought that I wanted to do. This is, you know, and here they had made this four-year commitment to go to school and go with all this, all this, pay all this money. And yet, you know, to be able to find out, you know, how many people go to college and get a degree and then realize that they don't like what they got their degree in. Fortunately, many times a degree can be transferred in other ways, but if you become a journeyman electrician or a journeyman plumber, you know, that kind of pigeonholes you. And so that's a lot of time of your life and your career development that you might have spent going down the wrong path. So once again, it is imperative that the contractors be involved in this. You know, there's a local uh, HVAC contractor in Tucson, Hamstra, who has its own training facility. Um, and so um, you can get, you get hired on there, you get trained on all the different equipment and you going to training. And then once again, you're going out in the field and you're helping. So you still have a, you know, you have a job, you have income, but you're getting your training and you're having to make that commitment as well. And I think that the diversification can happen through that program. Because I did, there is a cost to this that the students have to pay, but you can go through Pima County One Stop or those types of programs to get some of that funding. And then there are some contractors that will actually pay for your, um, you know, your education at the same time while you're going through as long as you, you know, maintain certain degrees or certain um, uh, scores. So, you know, but I think that the um, minority communities um, need to be aware of these opportunities. So for example, you know, Tucson Urban League 
uh, works with Job Corps, and 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 that's how you can go through the Job Corps program, and then you can get through to the traditional, um, you know, uh, journeyman electrician program or plumbing programs, and then and then once again, I think from sitting from the IEC side, if you've come from the Job Corps, you know what electrical contracting and what electrical work is going to be like, so you're a good bet to bring into the program and with a higher level of success than someone that just saw something on Twitter and just decides to sign up because it sounds like it's a good opportunity. So I believe that, you know, that somehow that that information needs to get out and we need to um, let young people know. And, and if there's any way that the JTED program could help on that, because we've been trying to reach into JTED because that can start at the high school level and start bringing in these, these young people because JTED, especially in the construction industry, gives them an opportunity to, to find out about, you know, carpentry, plumbing, flooring, concrete, and gives them all aspects of the construction industry. And then they can find out what is it that really kind of turns them on and then be able to get into those types of apprenticeship programs. But there is, there is a small apprenticeship program for masonry and I do believe there's one for concrete. But these all need to get some additional, I mean, they need to be boosted up. And I think that, you know, I don't know, I mean, I'm concerned about whether the restaurant industry is going to be able to recover to the point it was. I think people are finding that, you know, cooking at home is good and, and they can have fun at it. So all these people that were in that industry may need to pivot and find- You gotta go somewhere else. Yeah. And, it, and, and you know, the construction industry, was facing severe shortages of, of of employees, you know, prior to all this going on, and we still are. So we need training. We need we need to get new young blood. I think the average journeyman electrician is like 52. Um, so even if you're an older student or considered a non a non traditional student, if you're in your 30s, you actually would have a really interesting niche because once you got to you know got to the point where you could really be going in that industry all the old guys yeah. retiring and you'll have all the work you can handle you can't outsource getting your you know your toilet fixed to a foreign country it has to require somebody showing up at your house so true i i love that and, and i love what you said about um involving i think the the schools kind of K-12, kind of that, that you know, early higher ed. Um, I know Kathy Prather really well at, at Pima J-TED, and I know they're, they're doing a lot of really good work in that respect. And also, I think, uh, to your point, I think working with uh, Tucson Urban League and other nonprofits that work with, with um, uh, communities of color to create those pathways into the industry, I think that's, that's important. I think uh, you nailed it when you said that People have to find out about it, and and we need to do a better job at at getting in front of, of different communities and diverse communities if we're going to be able to to diversify the workforce. Well, and I think you know our, our education system. I mean, starting back with TUSD, and when the budget cuts all started happening in the '90s to get rid of the vocational education was short-sighted. I mean, I I am sitting here in front of you. I have two engineering degrees. What I found out in life that I really liked doing was electrical contracting and being a plumber. I mean, I can sit and draw and design up all you like, but somehow being able to take that and make it into something, you know, when, when I'm doing an off-grid system and then, you know, cooking up the final line and then have the customer turn a switch on and then they have electricity. I mean, that is like the greatest thing. Drafting so it up, and getting a permit, blah, 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 you know, but <laughs> actually, you know, running the wires and tightening up the conduit and, you know, or, or, or soldering up the joint and turning on the water or doing a well pumping system. That's what made my life seem, you know, real and valuable. Not the fact that I had the two engineering degrees up on the wall. It was, it was putting the wires together. Uh, I, I love that, Catherine, and I, and I love that coming from someone uh, who has been in kind of both sides of, of that equation, right? And and um, and I'm familiar with those programs, you know, uh, both, uh, you know, I spent almost 10 years at the University of Arizona, so I just, I know how rigorous even their, you know, the, 
the Eller College of Business is. And so for someone to say that, I, I think really um, um, speaks to the appreciation for the, you know, the work and, and your passion for, uh, for the contracting side, right? And, and you're right, right? It's difficult for, you can't outsource that work. You need someone up on a roof looking at the angle of your roof and, and really kind of evaluating um, what it's going to take in order to get that system installed, which I think kind of dovetails us into our, our last question. So, um, you know, a recent report um, showed that Tesla's solar division is moving away from a consultative sales approach. Um, you know, obviously, I think you said earlier that, you know, overhead and marketing costs account for um, nearly half of the average industry costs. Um, so, but yet someone has to talk to the customer, right? And assess their energy consumption, look at the roof, address their questions. What, what's your take on some of these direct to consumer models? Um, I, at, at this point, I haven't seen anything that is really to the benefit of the consumer other than price. And, and I, you know, Tesla is an interesting model, you know, previously, you know, Solar City. Um, once again, they have, you know, they've left this uh, Arizona market uh, effectively. And, you know, individuals that have uh, solar city systems are now sitting and, you know, having to wait months to get inverters replaced. And it's, you know, somehow when you're, you know, you're, we we do need to cut some of those costs, granted, but I don't think it should be in the understanding the consumer's understanding of what they're getting understanding of the benefits that they should be expecting or at or at the compromise of the long-term viability of the system so um i can tell you that um we could look at the google earth and as wonderful as they are we do still send our sales team up on the roof because there are things you don't see um, and you can take pictures of load centers and send those pictures off to uh, designers. And yet, you know, there are certainly things that that can bring to your attention. But until somebody is actually standing there trying to mount the um, solar meter and solar disconnect, it may not be as evident that there is a problem. So there's a lot of issues that I think get short shorted during that process and i think at the solar store we've decided now we're a very small regional company and compared to a tesla organization but you know i think that it's imperative that the customer understand exactly what they're getting and their benefits um what we are seeing from these other companies is that they say you're going to get a 6.7 kilowatt system and then we say well are you getting tier one modules? What's the module? What's the warranty on the module? What's the inverter? Those, that type of information isn't provided. And I know as we get into the um, early majority and we get into the, as the market continues to develop, the consumer may not be interested in that kind of information, but I believe the consumer, you know, they're not going to go out and buy a, a washing machine without checking consumer reports or something to see if that washing machine has good repair life. And that's the kind of information that the industry has not quite yet developed. And that's the kind of information that a knowledgeable sales representative can provide to a consumer. And we can't, we shouldn't short circuit that, that part of the process. It, it sounds like you're describing an opportunity, I think, in that it's almost like a synapse gap, right? Where there's, you know, I, I interestingly enough, I, I went to, to Tesla's website too, and I, I wanted to see like how, you know, how quickly, what do I need to do to, to enable that process? And, and, you know, to your point, it was relatively simple. You know, it, it asked me for my zip code, asked me where I lived. I, I typed in a few, uh, you know, my, where I live, my address, and, you know, it, it sent me to a page for a, you know, literally a, a connection agreement. Uh, I had a, a hundred dollar deposit, click here, and then you're, and, and you know, and, and you're on your way and they'll send a contractor. So I think it, it to your point, I think it is enabling, um, I'm, I think it's part of, a, it, it's part of this new wave of, of direct to consumer services where I think we're all used to, you know, uh, you know, how we access transportation mobility is very different from the days of hailing a cab, right? To now I can just whip up my phone. And so I think a lot of that is, is, is a sign of, of how we've 
progressed, right, in terms of, of uh, technologies that we have now. And I think to your point, it, it opens us up to uh, opportunity, but I think it opens us up to, to a lot of potential questions and, and, and issues where you could get, you know, stuck with, you know, a, a $30,000, you know, system and, and, you know, you don't, you don't even know where to go from there if it's, if it's not viable. Well, and then, you know, and they, in a lot of them, especially in the Tesla model, they do offer a performance guarantee, but it is so heavily weighted on their side by the end you get, by the time you get through the 20 years, um, your system could not be running for a year and they would still be in compliance. So, I mean, you, you, you just got a question, how fair is that? And so, I mean, there's simple websites for consumers to go out to. You can go to PV Watts and um, actually put in the system size and you don't have to specify the module. You can just say, well, it's just standard size solar panel, standard inverter, and this is what I want to do. And this is where they're placing it. And this is the angle and the, and the, the orientation. And it'll tell them how much that system's going to produce. And then when you put in your utility, it'll actually calculate what your savings are going to be. So the, the consumer has um, ways to actually validate it. I mean, we've got, I've actually seen installers that just have their own little spreadsheet they make up. And it doesn't matter the orientation or the azimuth, it is going to produce the same amount of power and you just kind of scratch your head. But I mean, somebody that actually has a master's degree in solar energy was, oh yeah, that's a problem. But you know, your average person that's getting this thinks, yeah, this looks like a good deal. And then in fact, you know, even though, the, you know, this, even this particular company has a performance guarantee, everyone I know that's gone in and said, my system's not performing. They say, well, you know, it's been a really cloudy year. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not no, going to get any money. So you've got to find out, you know, what, what will they do and have they ever actually paid anybody? I, I appreciate that, that perspective, Kathy. And, and I think in, in full disclosure, this is certainly not a criticism of Tesla. I think what, with on the on the transportation side on the EV side I mean they're they're doing so much to just really enable how we are we're going to move towards uh, towards a cleaner energy economy so um, I just thought it was an interesting uh, it's an it's certainly an interesting model and, and I think it was it was nice to to juxtapose that you know with someone who is in the business that is a very hands-on approach and really has to walk the customers uh, through that uh, Catherine before we hop off is there anything else that you want to share? Well, I just want to thank you guys for all the work that you do to, you know, to get this information out there. It's, um, you know, it's, it's amazing that, you know, that, that you guys have got the, the time and the drive to be able to try to, you know, drill into these types of topics and make sure that, you know, that there are, there is something out on the internet for people to actually pull up and look at and find it. So thank you for inviting me. Catherine, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. It, uh, it was a pleasure having you walk us through the, the state of solar and share some of the things that we can be optimistic about, uh, as well as uh, frame the, the challenges ahead. Uh, and then for all of you, uh, for those of you listening, uh, Current is created by Illumina Production Team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. Uh, thank you and see you next time. Catherine, thank you so much.